This is Lou Dobbs Sunday. Our first guest is Mike Benz. He's executive director of the Foundation for Freedom Online. I believe him to be the foremost expert on the police state censorship and propaganda and its history. And Mike, it's great to have you with us. You believe the two greatest instances of censorship in our country's history were the COVID-19 pandemic and the rigged election of 2020. Am I quoting you correctly? Well, I should sort of preface that by saying that their plan was to scale out what they did for those two things, those two events for, quote, every sensitive policy issue. And uh, my foundation's website has a whole supercut of clips about the way they wanted to expand uh, what they did for uh, COVID-19 censorship and 2020 election censorship into virtually every issue of concern of foreign policy establishment spanning energy, immigration, uh, abortion, you name it. But uh, but essentially what was happening during the COVID-19 and uh, the 2020 election mass censorship operations, which again were the most censored events in human history, and I include China's Great Firewall and other things in that when you look at the sheer scale of it. But what was happening was you basically had a perfect storm of, of three things that were available then and and in ready position that did not exist before and currently do not quite exist anymore. And, and that was you had a combination of censorship technology, censorship institutional uh, embedding, and political legitimacy to get away with it in, in the sense that there was not any pushback. There was not any, uh, it had not been scandalized. There was no public awareness, even trying to say, hey, this might be happening, got you labeled you know, something between either a partisan or a conspiracy theorist. And a lot of people didn't want to believe that the, uh, the you know, to stare directly into the sun, so to speak, and to uh, understand what they were even up against. And so those three things, the technology, the institutional embedding, and the political legitimacy, allowed them to get away with that. And those three things were essentially the, the AI censorship and narrative detection capabilities in order to detect every emerging narrative every grouping of communities in order to designate them as dis or malinformation. The sort of technology that did not exist before 2016, when all speech on the Internet was flagged manually, so you couldn't do millions or tens of millions of things censored at once, the technology did not exist to be able to track and then scan and ban or apply different levels of content moderation at scale. You know, if, uh, whether that's, you know, they, they call it remove, reduce, inform. Remove is when you just ban something altogether. Inform is the fact check label and the friction. And reduce is this great inter, you know, this, this great vast tundra of different interventions, as they call them, in order to throttle or deamplify or apply a so-called virality circuit breaker so that technically it's posted, but it can't get shared or it can't get above a certain number of, of, uh, of shares or, uh, or click-throughs or whatnot. So this this was technology that had been in development really since 2014, but then it supercharged after the 2016 election. And you had this brand new predicate with, with democracy after the Mullergate investigation fell apart in July 2019. We created these tools around censoring Russian disinformation, and you had the Pentagon and the State Department and the CIA and hundreds of NGOs and university centers who, were, who all had this institutional embedding with all the major tech companies. And they now had their hands on these play toys for these AI weapons of mass deletion, you know, as I re- refer to them, 
And none of them were household names. You didn't have Elon Musk uh, purchasing Twitter. There was no way to even popularize the issue because you couldn't even talk about it. You didn't have the House investigations from the Jim Jordan Committee or the House Homeland Security Committee or the Oversight Committee. You didn't have the subpoenas. You didn't have people being hauled in for transcribed interviews. You didn't have the lawsuit with Missouri v. Biden, the America First Legal lawsuit, or or the three different state attorney generals who've done these censorship investigations. Uh, the whole panoply. And so they got away with it. And what was amazing is, I'll just say as a final note, is I watched these people's morals evolve over time on this. Because I've been doing this for eight years. And they didn't start out with the kind of brazenness that they that they walked themselves up to, you know, around the, the COVID 2020 election. And then when they did this far into domestic switcheroo and took this Russian censorship predicate, Mm-hmm. that it existed from January 2017 up until summer of 2019. And then four months later, the pandemic starts. And then three months later, the mail-in ballot sort of uh, operation started. They that, At that moment, they could have just shelved it all and said, okay, well, we're not going to do censorship anymore because there's no more Russian threat for the 2020 election. But instead, they just transitioned it all home with this democracy branding. And they were able to get away with it until quite recently. Until quite recently. The issue here is 2020 and the epidemic government intruding into our private lives as citizens in this country uh, and translation that means diminishing our constitutional rights uh, wholesale in many instances we have a government that actually turned against the american people because this we can talk about in terms of censorship but the reality is the consent of the governed uh, is absent anywhere in the algorithm that remains. Uh, do you agree? Oh, not just in the algorithm, at the network level. I mean, what, what you're talking about is not, um, you know, is not an idea from, from you or me. It's an, it's an idea. It's, a, it's actually the, the central thesis of the Biden administration's legal defense of their censorship scheme, which is that the First Amendment uh, needs to be uh, effectively somewhere between shelved altogether or more broadly interpreted in the age of social media because um, democracy did not anticipate social media. And this is, this is the argument that, that they're making in the Missouri v. Biden case, that the traditional interpretation of the First Amendment should no longer apply. And a great example of this is actually one of the origin points of government censorship. There's a small little nucleus tucked within the State Department called the Global Engagement Center, which was initially set up to give the government the capacity to to censor ISIS, because in 2014 and 2015, during the Obama administration, as part of the lead up to putting boots on the ground in a military sense uh, into Syria, there were all of these, you know, hyperventilated threats, uh, you know, surround sound media about ISIS recruiting Americans on Facebook and Twitter, and it was everywhere. And that gave this sort of political predicate to set up a group within the State Department that would be able to have a liaison office at the highest levels of YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and every major platform and forum uh, on the Internet to be able to tell them, hey, these networks need to go down. This speech is not allowed. This person sounds like an ISIS recruiter. Or, or, or ISIS propaganda. They map the whole language, the exact same thing they would do for critics of mail-in ballots or for COVID-19 or for COVID-19 heterodox opinions, uh, which is this, this process uh, when you're creating these, these censorship algorithms of mapping the, the specific linguistics of, you know, the slang terms, the prefixes, the suffixes, the, the slogans, the, the hashtags. Um, you know, every, there's a unique dialect that, that every, belief system articulates. You know, we 
we, you know, who, who tend to be more on sort of the, the right side uh, or conservative side of the aisle can very quickly identify this when we hear social justice or, or cultural Marxist type type talk. We can sort of identify that immediately just with our own sort of human capacities. Uh, you can only imagine the power of AI to be able to do that. And that is that is what, you know, was, was basically under construction uh, with the assistance from the Global Engagement Center at the State Department. And the guy who, who founded that, that censorship center within the State Department, Rich Sengel, uh, came from being the managing editor of Time Magazine previously. And he was the Undersecretary of State for Public Affairs, which is the, you know, which is the liaison office that coordinates basically the CIA, the State Department, and mainstream media in order to amplify the State Department's, uh, foreign policy priorities. And he had, he had, uh, you know, he, he had said that his mission was, first of all, he described himself as Obama's propagandist in chief, but he had said that his mission as, as uh, Undersecretary of State for Public Affairs was to, quote, export the First Amendment. But then two years later, when, when social media cost them the election, he then wrote a Washington Post op-ed and an entire book calling for an end to the First Amendment because it allows the kind of people to be elected who might undermine democracy. So it went from exporting the First Amendment to ending the First Amendment just because they lost an election. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. And recently, listening to Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, being asked about FISA reauthorization and reform, uh, suggesting, it's not suggesting, stating clearly that the administration doesn't believe that the First Amendment uh, concerns where it pertains to uh, warrantless wiretaps uh, would be helpful to the national interest. I mean, to hear this nonsense spewing out of this administration, frankly, I, every American should be chilled uh, with that kind of attitude in the White House. And because of you, we know that that attitude permeates uh, our federal government, in point of fact, that is under the control of the uh, of really the, the deep state uh, and the Marxist Dems, as I call them. Uh, who is in charge of this country? Who is in charge of... I think I know the answer, but our government. Uh, and is there is there any place to hide in the midst of all of this? So my stock answer to that question is simply the blob. And then the, you know, the magic of that is what is the shape of the blob? And the blob is, was a term that uh, Obama's deputy is uh, national security advisor, Ben Rhodes uh, described as being, you know, what you're up against when you're trying as a president to actually, you know, uh, affect foreign policy in the in the country. And in the blob, you know, refers to the this foreign policy establishment, which is a really sort of cute way, uh, a sort of boring way of describing the managers of the American empire. And so here, I think, at a sort of theoretical level, it's important to draw a distinction between the managers of the American empire and the citizens of the American homeland. Because the power structures that, that run Washington, there's a very sharp divide between those two things. We have, America is not just the 330 odd million people who live here. It is, America is the world and it has been for, you know, almost a, almost a century now in the sense that 
you know, in 1898, we became this global empire when we took the Philippines in the Spanish-American War, and we took Cuba, and we had to defend all these foreign territories. Frankly, you can take it back farther than that into the 1823 Monroe Doctrine and the Banana Wars. And, and all, you know, we are an industrial nation of, of multinational corporations uh, in a big, bad, mean old world where every country's government is, is, you know, trying to do what's best for its own corporations and its own people. And so their resource nationalism is real. Mar- you know, market protectionism is real. And so we, in order to maintain our hold over the American empire, we needed to create this vast blob structure that is at the, the, at the government level is, is localized to three different sort of legs. There's the Pentagon, the State Department, and the intelligence community. And, and they all play different roles, but it's important when you think of those three different categories of institutions, they are one thing. If you have a job at the Pentagon as a deputy assistant secretary there, the very next year you could be a deputy assistant secretary of the State Department or, or go into the CIA or NSA or any of the other 17 agencies. It's one thing. And, and the, there's, so there's, that's the government side of it. But then you have the donors and drafters of the battering ram of the blob. And, and I should say, the blob is imbued with a Department of Dirty Tricks power. We have this Department of Dirty Tricks to be able to co-opt all the different private sector, civil society, and media institutions in that region in order to make it more pliant to the empire's interests. So, so this is a, this is the, the essentially the main power structure in Washington's because we are the empire is much much bigger than the homeland. The issue is is while that may have been in some ways responsible for our prosperous middle class in the 20th century because all of our multinational corporations. Pepsi Cola could export to billions of people. Um, Microsoft, you know, uh, our oil and gas companies, uh, they they would not be able to have access to these foreign markets unless the State Department pried them open, or unless the or unless the Pentagon or NATO, you know, uh, basically forced free market reforms, or unless the you know our intelligence agencies were able to pipe in surround sound media or or groom a sort of political class through emerging leader programs and whatnot. The issue is, is we had this Department of Dirty Tricks, which was supposed to be this kind of, you know, multi-headed hydra, pit bull, orca whale defending our American interests, and it was never supposed to come inside the house. It was supposed to protect us and sort of, you know, uh, acquire territory politically in order to increase U.S. national interests. But after the 2016 election, they they broke two and a, you know, they, they broke... You know, what's effectively two and a half centuries of, of precedent, going you know going back to our founding, but certainly a century of precedent precedent since the founding of, of, of this apparatus in 1948. Uh, in, in the same way, they broke that precedent. By the way, at the Justice Department level, you know, with indicting Trump and with these these bankruptcy lawsuits. But in 2016, we took our magic Department of Dirty Tricks democracy uh, blob power and we turned it inward to do the same thing to our own homeland what we did to other regions in the empire. Yet we are in conflict, and uh, it looks like mortal conflict, frankly, to me right now. Mike, thank you so much for your time today. I I would love for you to come back soon and continue the conversation. I know the audience would as well. Uh, But thank you so much for your time today and for the the tutorial, as always. Thanks, Lou. I'd love to continue the conversation. Great. Thank you. Mike Benz, the foundation for uh, the foundation for freedom online, and uh, and I recommend everyone go to it. It's just a a, a wonderful website, and you've heard uh, the power uh, behind it. Uh, Mike Benz, thanks so much, Mike.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.